one parent, two kids, 423 national park sites. This is Expedition National Parks. Dispatches and stories from one family's journey to discover the natural, historical, and cultural treasures of the United States. Not only is this the third largest fort that our country built, but this is also the most powerful fortification our country built. This fort was designed to house 420 or more cannons, more than any other fortification of its time frame. So does the sheer size and power of Fort Jefferson make this place pretty special and unique? Almost 70 miles west of Key West lies the remote Dry Tortugas National Park. This 100 square mile park is mostly open water with seven small islands. Accessible only by boat or seaplane, the park is known the world over as the home of the magnificent Fort Jefferson and for its picturesque blue waters, super light of coral reefs and marine life, and the vast assortment of bird life that frequents the area. Dry Tortugas National Park is a bucket list adventure for many of the visitors who make it there. We camped for two nights and would highly recommend it, but take any opportunity you have to visit what you can. Its isolation means dark skies with amazing stargazing, incredible bird sightings, and great snorkeling. And of course, there is Fort Jefferson, part of the third system of the U.S. coastal defense. Fort Jefferson is the largest big masonry structure in the United States and is built out of 16 million bricks. While the vast majority of the visitors come via Yankee Freedom Ferry or seaplane, camping is also a possibility. We've included more information in the episode notes, but want to encourage you to consider this option. When we met experienced campers, even the most novice can have a great time. We bought the most basic equipment and food and thoroughly enjoyed our two nights there. We supplemented our food with purchases from the ferry. Megan Ackery talks about what made her camping experience so special. Um, came here to camp for a couple nights. Um, lots of different snorkeling spots and historical artifacts to check out. Very cool spot. Came here with my dad, Pat Acre. He's great. It was fun. <laughs> Honestly, like the camping was the best camping after all the national parks I've been to. It was the, the best camping, best restrooms. Um, very comfortable temperature wise. We're here in uh, January, so it was pretty comfortable. Warm at night. Lots of stars. Yeah, and I know some people were concerned about the the temperature of the water. Water temperature was great. It was like you get in there, it's a little cold. After 10 minutes, you get used to it. Very easy. It's awesome. And uh, was it peaceful? For sure. I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere, you know. It's like you just have some great friends. You meet great people out here. You're in the middle of nowhere. And it was extremely peaceful. So quiet. You hear the ocean when you're going to sleep. See the stars. How long have you been planning this trip, and how did you hear about Dry Tortugas to camp? Um, well, my dad told me about it. He's been wanting to go here pretty much his whole life. Um, he's very into history and stuff like that. Um, obviously, the place is very rich in history. And then we planned it probably back in October, so maybe like three months ago. We booked our spot. So this is very much a bucket list for him. Yeah, yeah. He's actually doing his bucket list. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, this is stop one so far. The nature was insane. I mean, there's hermit crabs and lizards and so many huge fish that, like, I've just never seen before. Um, and, I mean, there's just little stuff everywhere. You just got to wait for it, and, like, there's stuff all around you. It's pretty cool. The hermit crabs come out at about dusk, and just hundreds of them coming out, and armies just... They're not harmful or anything, but uh, it was a pretty weird sight to see all these hermit crabs come out of the come out of the bush and just... 
walk around everything. It was cool. The most interesting part for me was the where they kept all the ammo and how they kept the ammo, like how they shipped it here and how they had like big buildings just full of ammunition for people that would be crossing. It's obviously the Caribbean as well, so there's a lot of pirates and stuff. It's just like, it's just stuff that you hear in books, you know, until you get here and it's like, oh, it's all real, you know? It's like, once you're here, obviously campers are very friendly. They'll help you out with anything, but I mean, it is one of the best national parks I've, I've ever gone to for accommodations. I mean, the bathrooms are pristine. <laughs> the campsites are great. It's super comfortable. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, the boat park's here for a couple hours a day, and you get to get lunch on there and water, and it's, like, it's pretty accommodating. I mean, compared to other places, like, you don't really have to bring a whole lot except your sleeping gear. And you uh, brought, you, you both flew in, so some of the stuff you brought and some you bought locally? Yeah, actually, most of the stuff, I actually bought a bunch of MREs, military rations, thinking that, like... I wasn't going to be able to cook and stuff like that, but it, you have like a little grill. Um, I brought my chair and my tent, and really, like I almost overprepared, you know. Any last words of wisdom for people considering? If you're considering it, this is one of the places that very few people get to see. Like when you get those national park passports, this is a one stamp that a lot of people don't get to put into their passports, and I think. If you get the opportunity, you gotta go. There's no more describing it. You just gotta do it. Her father, Pat Ackery, describes why he put a trip to the park on his bucket list. I always just thought it would be a cool place to go to and camp, do and, a little snorkeling. And where did you hear about it, though? First. God, I don't know. I don't know. Me and my... I don't know if it was one of my buddies and I were... We, we came down here after high school. We hopped in a car and grabbed an ounce of pot and came down here and everybody would go down to the dock every night and I think that's where the first time I heard about it but we didn't do it for some reason and I always wanted to come down here and see it you know so so 45 years later here I am we met many people and families who are avid park visitors and collectors including Kim Harmon and her family who camped like how why did you decide to come camping here we were going to do all the national parks and this was on the list we did Florida three in Florida this week. So you want to do all 62 national Well, parks? yeah. As many as we can do with our kids. And what about the other the, the units? Are you visiting those as well? Um, we will, if anything is close and accessible to where we're going to be, then for sure. Okay. Yeah. And when did you start on this journey? Um, we did a few a few years ago, but um, we did probably 10 in the last couple years. And we're just starting January 1st at Shenandoah National Park. And then we came down here. Then we'll do another park in May and then do a six-week loop at the end of summer. So the six-week loop is going to be west, I guess. Yes. Arizona. Yep. Um, we did Arizona already a couple okay. years ago. So we'll go up to Washington, um, Glacier and Washington, all of those around there. Not Rushmore. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll catch you later. The campsite and destination of the Daily Ferry from Key West is Garden Key, one of the seven islands in the park and only one that has scheduled transportation open to the public. The largest island is Lodgerhead Key, which can be visited by private boat or by kayak. While kayaks can be brought on the ferry, space is very limited and has to be booked well in advance. Kayaking to Lodgerhead is also not recommended for beginners. Be sure to read all the information on the MPS and Yankee Freedom website so you are prepared for all aspects of your adventure. Check out the Yankee Freedom website to book your camping trip. You can sell out 9-12 to months in advance, so plan your trip well in advance. 
And now it is time for our outdoor organization feature. This month we are sharing the work of the Venture Out Project as part of our community effort to showcase organizations who are working towards social justice and more inclusive public lands. Established in 2014 by Perry Cohen, the Venture Out Project was one of the first guiding companies run by and for queer and transgender people. The mission of the Venture Out Project is to provide a safe and fun space for queer and transgender and LGBTQ plus people to experience the outdoors and as well as providing education and support that helps schools and organizations affirm their LGBTQ plus members. This is further underscored by their commitment to environmental stewardship, social justice, diversity, and inclusion. Check out the episode notes for more details. Exploring the fort is another fun and educational activity. It is open sunrise to sunset. If you are camping, you can explore it at your leisure when the island is almost deserted. Day trippers and campers alike are treated to an amazing tour offered by Yankee Freedom. Our tour was led by Hollywood, whose love for the fort was both clear and infectious, not surprising given that he has been visiting for close to 20 years and has spent many vacations there in addition to his many years working on the Yankee Freedom. He started the tour by explaining why Fort Jefferson was built in such a remote area. One of my favorite parts about this national park is actually the fort that's surrounding us right now. And I hope you don't think that this is your average size fort. This is a massive fortification. This is actually the third largest of the third system of fortifications built by the United States during the 1800s. Not only is this the third largest fort that our country built, but this is also the most powerful fortification our country built. This fort was designed to house 420 or more cannons, more than any other fortification of its time frame. So does the sheer size and power of Fort Jefferson make this place pretty special and unique? But when you add to it its location, the fact that we're out here in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, I think that makes it a little intriguing as well. And if you're just willing to add one additional step with me and consider for a few minutes what it would have been like to try to build something like this all the way out here back then, I think it really becomes an amazing story, folks. I'm sure you already noticed on your trip out here that there's not a lot of stuff out here in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, right? <laughs> I mean, it's been over an hour since you saw your last piece of land, the Marquesas. Then we finally get out here to the Dry Tortugas, you look around, and it's just seven little islands. Even on some of the larger islands, like the one we're on now, Garden Key, it's one of the larger islands out here. But when you look around, I mean, what is there to it? We, we got a few scrub trees inside the fort here, a few palm trees outside. We do have that big cactus back over there in that corner, right? <laughs> but you know if you're trying to build a fort out here, folks, you would quickly realize that there's really only three materials in the dry tortugas that you could use in this sort of construction. And those three materials are going to be sand, salt water, and coral. Which means everything else you see here had to get shipped here. And when you start to break that down, it's kind of insane. I mean, right now, folks, you're looking at approximately 16 million bricks. 16 million that went in the construction of this fort. We just walked through the Sally Port, the only way in and out of Fort Jefferson. And you'll see the Sally Port walls are made up of those big pieces of granite, right? Well, in addition to the granite that we use for the Sally Port walls, you'll see we also use granite in the foundation of many of the buildings over here inside the fort. We have a slab of granite below every embrasure or opening on the first tier. And if you walk up any of our staircases today, you'll find that all six of our spiral staircases are made up of these massive, massive slabs of granite. We also had to bring out lumber. Lumber for scaffolding, for framing in the masonry work, for the insides of the buildings. Did anybody here just happen to notice the stone that you walked across when you came through the sally port over there? It looks a little bit like slate. 
to most people, okay? And I'm sure you all know that slate's heavy because we've all tried to cheat at a game of pool and lift up a pool table, right? All right, this is just a little awkward. Forget it. Right. It's awkward now. Don't worry about it. Just trust me, I guess. Uh, and if you don't trust me, next time you see a pool table, try to pick one up, okay? It's going to be heavy because of this thin layer of slate that's in those tables. But folks, that stone you walked across, it actually wasn't slate. That stone is a stone called gray wacky. Now, gray wacky is a form of bluestone. It's much thicker, it's much denser. It's also, because of that, much, much heavier than slate is. And we didn't use that stone just for the floor of that one room, folks. We had actually used this stone for the floor of the entire first tier of Fort Jefferson. Because and we had to use this stone because of the weight and the power of the cannons that were here. Look, the, the cannons that we had out here, they were so heavy and powerful that if you used slate, for your floor, it would, they would pulverize slate. So you had to bring on that thicker, denser, stronger, but much, much heavier stone for your floors. And then there's the cement. I mean, can you imagine how many barrels of cement went into the construction of just one of these rooms, let alone this entire fortification? And then don't forget about the foundation underneath it. This is a massive amount of heavy stuff to be bringing all the way out here, folks. And keep in mind, you know, it's not getting shipped out here on an 800-foot or 1,000-foot container ship with a big crane to help you offload it, right? <laughs> this is all getting shipped out here in the early 1800s on wooden sailing ships that you have to manually offload. I mean, even the trip out here blows my mind. What, it taken us, what took us today only two and a half hours to get from Key West here, do you realize it would have taken those ships back then 10 to 20 hours? And that's just to get from Key West to here. But you realize there was no road to Key West back then, right? <laughs> Which means that all these supplies that we're talking about, the granite, the gray wax, the, the lumber, the cement, this is all actually getting shipped to us from Massachusetts, Vermont, New York. One of the closest places was Pensacola, Florida. So you are literally looking at days to weeks worth of travel time on these wooden sailing ships going through horrible storms and bad weather just to get out here to the dock. If you were lucky enough to get to this dock, and folks understand that many of them were not, right? But if you were lucky enough to get to that dock, well, that's when you got to look forward to manually offloading all that heavy stuff. <laughs> and then some of you, well, then some of you were then going to be fortunate enough to get to stay out here, right? On this tropical island, trying to build a masonry fort in the tropical heat. Not today's tropical heat. This is a cold winter day. <laughs> but normally it is much, much warmer than this. And that's the other thing. Not only do you have to bring out the majority of the materials to build this fort, but nobody lived here before this, so you have to ship out all the labor to build the fort for you. And if you're going to ship people out here to build the fort, you got to ship them out food to eat. <laughs> do you realize we don't even have any fresh water out here, so you're also going to have to ship out fresh water or wait for them to make fresh water? When I realized how difficult it was going to be to build anything at all, all the way out here back then, I was shocked to find out the United States of America was choosing to build the most powerful fortification the country was going to build all the way out here. <coughs> Especially once you understand that even once this fort was finished, any ship can literally sail right around the range of its cannons, right? <laughs> when I realized all this, there was one question that immediately popped into my head. I'm sure you guys all have the same question. What? What kind of drugs was a person out <laughs> And look, if they weren't on something just crazy, well, that, that, that means there has to be a really good reason why, right? Well, I did a little research on that whole why thing, 
And it turns out that this spot in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, it wasn't just important to the United States of America. This spot has been important to countries for hundreds and hundreds of years. And to fully understand what makes this place so valuable and important, I had to go back in time 507 years. And I want to take you back there with me, back to 1513, because that was the year that Ponce de Leon originally charted these islands. And when he first charted these islands, there were 11 of them out here. Today, today we only have seven. Four have been reclaimed by the sea over the last 507 years, and that's a great example of just how dynamic and unstable these islands are. But in addition to the islands, Ponce de Leon discovered two other things that were very, very important. First, hands down, most important thing he discovered is that on either side of this island, there's a natural deep water safe harbor or anchorage. Now, folks, I cannot overemphasize enough to you how important safe harbors or anchorages are to mariners. They are literally the differences between life and death when you have a big storm. It is the only safe harbor in the area, with the next closest being 70 miles away. Ponce de Leon also learned that there was an abundance of sea turtles on the island, with 116 being captured on his first visit to the island. This led him to name the islands Las Tortugas, turtles in Spanish, important as they were an important food resource. Now after Ponce de Leon, lots of other Europeans started going back and forth between Europe and the Americas, and as they're going back and forth, back and forth, they discovered something else just to the south of us out here. Right offshore to the south of us, there's this massive river that's running through the ocean. And this river is actually running from the west to the east. But after it passes the Florida Keys, it turns north, goes up the entire eastern seaboard, and then back over to Europe. Now today, today we call this river the Gulf Stream. It's one of many currents that run through the world's oceans that ships still use to this very day to help get them from point A to point B more quickly, more efficiently. And this Gulf Stream, it becomes important to us here in the Dry Tortugas because the result of it was that any European that found themselves somewhere to the south or to the west of us. And this is the big area we're talking about, right? I mean, this would include the whole east coast of Mexico, the east coast of Central America, South America, even a significant portion of the Caribbean. Look, if you were a European in one of these four major regions and you wanted to get back home to see your family again, if you wanted to get back home to get paid quicker, you're going to want to get into that Gulf Stream or into that current as soon as you possibly could and use that current to take your ships home faster. So all these Europeans at the south end of the west, if it's when it's time for them to go home, they all hop into that Gulf Stream and then that Gulf Stream is going to bring their ships right below these islands and again, these harbors on their way back home. Now look, we've already mentioned how important these harbors are to ships today, but you need to understand that these harbors were even more important to those ships back then. Today, today we are lucky enough to have the harbors in Key West only 70 miles away from us. But folks, understand that those harbors in Key West, as well as the majority of the other harbors you'll think of in the southeastern United States, they've been dredged or made by man over just the last 150 years. Folks, back then, these were one of the very, very few natural, deep water safe harbors or anchorages in the southeastern United States for those big ocean-going ships to get into to find protection or refuge. These harbors, these harbors became extremely important to the United States of America, or I'm sorry, to those Europeans on their way back home. Matter of fact, so many British ships start passing by and utilizing these harbors that it's actually the English chart makers in the 1700s that start to change the name of these islands. Instead of continuing to write down lost Tortugas on their nautical charts, in the 1700s, the English, they start writing down dry tortugas. Now, the reason they're doing this is to warn their ships that although there are some great safe harbors out here and a fabulous food source, there was no water. 
If there's any chance you could get stuck out here because of a big hurricane, or you got stuck out here doing a repair to your ship you didn't expect you'd have to do, you better make sure your last port of call, you topped off on your fresh water tanks, maybe even grab a little extra because you're not gonna find any fresh water here in the dry Tortugas. Now obviously these harbors, they were very, very important to those Europeans for hundreds of years on their way back home, but they really don't become important to the United States of America, folks, until between 1803 and 1821. Hang in there, guys. I swear I'm almost done. <laughs> All right, 1803, Louisiana Purchase. We buy this huge swath of land from Napoleon. It basically doubles the size of the United States overnight, just like that. But more importantly than doubling the size of the United States is that it gives us control of the entire Mississippi River system and the port of New Orleans. Now I'm going to assume that most of you here already understand that a lot of commerce, a lot of stuff, still flows up and down the Mississippi River system today. A significant portion of the United States economy, it still passes through the port of New Orleans today, right? And you all realize that that is today. When we have all these other means of transportation at our disposal. I mean, today, today we have what? Railroads, we have highways, you have airports, we have pipelines. Folks, if this waterway system is still this important to the United States of America today, could you even begin to fathom how important it would have been to us back in 1803 before we had these other means of transportation? <clears throat> Suddenly, with the Louisiana Purchase, you now have the ability to move massive amounts of goods and people from the big cities of the East Coast, like Boston and New York, up and in the center of the country. You now have the ability to move massive amounts of natural resources, like lumber and agriculture, fur and gold, from the center of your country from your heartland, right? Back up into the big cities of the East Coast to sell, or even back over to Europe to sell. People who would have never left the East Coast of the United States, they're now willing to move up into the center of the country. As more and more people are moving into the center of the country, more and more people are moving further, further west. As more people move into the center and west, more and more resources are brought out from the heartland and being sold in the big cities of the East Coast and over in Europe. Folks, because of this Louisiana purchase, the United States of America is suddenly expanding rapidly, and our economy, our economy is just booming, and it's all because of these ships that are connecting the big cities of the East Coast to the heartland of the U.S. Now, as these ships sail back and forth, they can sail all the way down the eastern seaboard, but once they get down to the tip of Florida, they can't just sail up the west coast of Florida to get up into the Gulf of Mexico. They actually have to first sail all the way out here to the dry Tortugas. And the reason for this is that this is the end of a barrier reef system that runs all the way from Miami. Technically Biscayne Bay, if any of you guys are from Miami, all the way out here to the dry Tortugas. Now because of this barrier reef system, folks, any ship that wants to sail up here into the Gulf of Mexico will first have to sail down the eastern seaboard, get to the tip of Florida, start sailing west, but as soon as they pass these islands, they know they're in deep enough water to safely make their turn north to the port of New Orleans. They'll leave the port of New Orleans, head south. Once they get see these islands pass by their port or left side, they then know they can get into that Gulf Stream and have to take them back up the eastern seaboard or even over to Europe. All of a sudden, we have all these ships that are so critical to the growth of your country and your economy, and every single one of these ships has to pass by this one little point in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And again, this one little point is the only place out here for any of those ships to find uh, protection or refuge. These harbors, these harbors become extremely important in the United States of America in 1803, but the kicker is we can't do anything with these islands in 1803. And that's because we don't take possession of the state of Florida and these islands from Spain until 1821. Now, almost immediately after taking possession of these islands from Spain in 1821, we started to build something out here. And the first permanent structure we decided to build was gonna be something that was to protect our ships and our shipping route. Now, that first permanent structure was actually built right over here. 
On the other side of that second tree, you see a circular cement pad on the ground. Well, that was the foundation for the first permanent structure in the Dry Tortugas. It was a lighthouse, and that lighthouse was designed to do, it was a 70-foot lighthouse, and it was designed to do two things. First, to be a harbor light, to let everybody know that this is the island of the safe harbors on either side, but secondly, to be a navigational light. That way, even in nighttime, sailors would know when they're passing the end of that barrier reef system so they could safely make their turns. Now, that lighthouse was first lit in 1826. Very shortly after that, we start making plans to fortify these <coughs> islands. Now, the reason we're going to fortify these islands is because of an event that took place back during the War of 1812. Now, during the War of 1812, we were fighting the British again. And in 1814, this massive British fleet sails into Maryland, they disgorge their troops. Those troops, they march directly on Washington, D.C. The President of the United States and the Congress have to evacuate from Washington, D.C., and then the British burn the capital. This is a huge wake-up call for the United States. And we suddenly realize our small coastal navy, it is no match for these big blue water fleets of Britain, Spain, and France. Yet somehow, even as a young country, we needed to figure out a way to protect our important coastal cities and our important harbors from coastal attack. So what we decided to do is build a series of fortifications up and down the eastern seaboard, into the Gulf of Mexico, even a couple on the west coast. And these new forts that we're building, they're not just going to be earthen Burman wood forts. They're going to be permanent fortifications to be able to protect your uh, coastline for the foreseeable future. Now, in addition to these fortifications up and down the eastern seaboard, they decided to, to interconnect all these forts with either roads and or canals. That way, if one fort comes under attack, the forts on either side of them will be able to quickly and easily send them supplies and reinforcements. Now, this whole idea of permanently fortifying your coastline and interconnecting the forts so they could easily be supplied and reinforced is today known as the third system of fortification in the United States. And at the essence of this is we're trying to protect our important harbors. Obviously, these harbors here in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, the only harbors here to protect those ships that are so critical to the growth of your country and your economy, these would have to be some of your most important harbors. If you wanted to make sure your ships always had a safe place to go here in the Gulf, you might want to put a fort on these islands to protect those harbors. But in addition to this, folks, and really much more from a strategic sense, as soon as you understand that this is the end of that barrier reef system that runs from uh, Miami, the tip of Florida, all the way out here to the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, once you understand that that reef line is there, then you should understand that any ship that ever wants to sail up here into the Gulf of Mexico, they're all going to have to sail somewhere to the south of these islands before making their way up into the Gulf of Mexico, right? Once you understand that, take a look at a chart. And when you look at a chart, one of the first things you're going to see is that Cuba is just 106 miles south of where you're at right now. Y'all realize that Mexico is just a little over 300 miles to the west of us here? But it's only about 200 miles off the west coast of Cuba. When you see all this laid out on a chart in front of you, suddenly it doesn't take that much of an imagination to visualize a giant British, Spanish, or French fleet right out here in these harbors, putting supplies on this island. That way their ships, their ships could perpetually patrol between here and Cuba literally blockading the entire Gulf of Mexico, severing the artery that connects the heartland of the U.S. to the big cities of the East Coast. Folks, back then, before your railroads and your highways, your airports and your pipelines... We need a fork here. Okay, good idea. <laughs> before your, your roadways, your highways, your airports and your pipelines, here. if you still wanted to have access to the natural resources in the heartland of your country, if you even wanted to control the center of your country, you needed to first control these islands. These islands are literally the keys to the Gulf of Mexico. This is the Gibraltar of the Gulf.
Once you understand that, it is obvious you need a fort here. Uh, but I didn't immediately understand why this had to be the most powerful fort our country built. That turns out because of all the other forts we're designing and building up and down the eastern seaboard. Remember, all those other forts are designed to be interconnected so they could quickly and easily be supplied and reinforced. Out here, though, the only way you'll ever get supplies or reinforcements is by ship. And the only reason we're building these forts in the first place is our navy was no match for the big blue water fleets of Europe. Which means if you came under attack out here, you weren't getting more supplies. If you come under attack out here, there are no reinforcements coming out of here to help you. You, you're it. You're on your own. So the idea was we needed to build such a huge, overwhelmingly powerful fort, something that would be so intimidating that nobody in their right mind would even dare consider to attack Fort Jefferson. So, and if someone was crazy enough to attack this fort, we needed to make sure that Fort Jefferson would be big enough and powerful enough to defend itself for an entire year. Imagine a full year without any additional supplies or reinforcements. So that's the reason we have this fort in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico and why Fort Jefferson is the most powerful fortification our country built. Now I hope that answers all of your why questions. If you can believe it, that was only part of Hollywood's introduction. He gave a phenomenal extended tour, which I'm sure you will all enjoy as much as we did. I hope we have convinced you to add Dry Tortugas National Park to your bucket list. Whether for a day or for a camping trip, you will make some of the best memories of your life. Thanks for listening. Again, please remember to check out and support the Venture Art Project. You can find more info in our episode page. We would love your feedback. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or message us on our social media accounts. We are Expedition National Parks on Facebook and Instagram and Expedition NPS on Twitter. Thanks to Jason Shaw for the music. And as always, follow the inspiration of the Junior Rango motto, keep exploring, learning, and protecting. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.